0: Growing up, Christians often in the particular church that I was a part of, unfortunately, were rather sour and dour. <laughs> you know, their faces looked more like the cover to the book of Lamentations. <laughs> um, and they just needed to kind of allow the joy of Christ to kind of somehow find an expression through the face. So it's really, really good to see you here this morning. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of meeting with the combined leadership uh, that were present from East Keelor and Saving Grace, and I shared with them a devotional seed thought. And like all good seeds, if you just let them sit there for a, water, uh, a while and you water them, they just kind of germinate. And so what I want to share with you this morning is kind of the outgrowth of that time I spent with your leaders over the past few weeks ago. There was a bloke uh, who was committed to history by the name of Daniel Borstein, and he documented in his historical writings, a momentous shift that occurred in North America during the 19th century. People, stopped calling those who went on trips travelers. Instead, they started calling them tourists. Now, the word traveler is a unique word. It literally means one who travails. He labors, he, he suffers, he endures. A traveler or a travailer Gets impregnated in the new and the strange reality of where they're visiting. They immerse themselves in culture. They learn the language and the customs. They live with the locals. They imitate the dress. They eat whatever is put in front of them. They take risks. Some of them are rather enormous. They make sacrifices some quite extravagant. They have some tight scrapes and narrow escapes, and generally they're gone a long time. And if they ever return, they return forever altered. In a sense, they never really go back. But a tourist, not so. You see, a tourist literally means One who goes around in circles. He's just taking an exotic detour home. He's only passing through, sampling wares, acquiring souvenirs. He tastes more than he eats. He retreats every night to what is safe and familiar. Oh, he may pick up a word here and there. A phrase here and there, but the language and the world in which it's embedded is rather opaque and cryptic and vaguely even annoying because it's not like what they're accustomed to. You see, a tourist is merely a spectator and a consumer returning home with an album of photos, a few mementos and a cheap dorky looking hat. And he's happy to be home. And he declares, man, there ain't no place like home. Now, we've made a similar shift in the church. At some point, we've stopped calling Christians disciples and we started calling them believers. A disciple is a learner and a follower and an imitator of Jesus, Jesus. You see, they lose their life in order to find it. They soak in the language and in the culture of Christ until His Word and His world reshapes theirs, redefines them, changes them from the inside out in how they see, think, dream, and live. And whatever values they bring into the world of Jesus They're completely reordered. Many times they're laid waste and kingdom values take their place. And friends who once knew them before, (laughs) wow, they can scarcely recognize them anymore. A believer, though, not so. A believer holds certain beliefs, but how deep down they go depends on whether they're in a good mood or not. You see, you you can't be a disciple without being a believer. But here's the rub. You can be a believer without being a disciple. You can say all the right things, think all the right things, believe all the right things, maybe do all the right things, and still not be following and reflecting Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God is made up of travailers. But if we're not careful, we may find our churches largely populated with tourists. And that's why no wonder at times we can feel like we're just going around in circles. As disciples, we're called to help people to come and to see and to know and to experience the love of God in Christ. Jesus' love for us compels us to love people better. Because if we don't, the gospel that the people desperately need gets muffled in all of our religiosity and all of our pride. A seed that I shared with the leadership a few weeks ago was Proverbs 20 and verse 5, and the seed reads like this. A plan or purpose in the heart of a man is like deep water. But a man or a person of understanding draws it out. Here's the challenge for us this morning in becoming a tool for the gospel we need to become people of understanding, people who seek to understand more than we seek to be understood. And the more that we seek to understand and listen to the people with whom we're called to serve, the more likely they are going to be willing to listen to us. We need to learn how to ask good questions that draw out the deep water that abides in every person's soul. Everyone's got a story. But we keep it close. Because, see, our story is part of our heart. And you don't give your heart just to anybody because you don't know if they're going to treasure it or they're going to play footy with it. And so you guard it. But we need to slow down and listen closely to the longings of hearts. And when we do that, we'll become effective tools in the hand of our God for the gospel. Now, whenever I think about how I can become better in understanding and listening and being kind of that salt-light reality that Jesus wants me to be. I always think of him. In particular, his encounter with a woman who was from a rather shady kind of ethnicity, if you will, whose lifestyle was very counter-Jesus. Jesus. And it's in John chapter 4. Take your Bible and turn there. And while you're turning, let me just give you the big flyby. It's it's high noon. When the sun is really, it's hottest. And there's no real reason for a woman to go get water at this time. But she chose that time because she knew that no one else would probably be at the well. No one... No woman generally goes to the well for water in the heat of the day. She probably wanted to avoid running into one of the wives of the men with whom she had been sexually involved. You see, she had had five husbands, and the bloke that she was now living with wasn't her husband. And so she goes to the well, and who's there? Because he's tired. Jesus. Now, this is amazing. This this gobsmacks me in all honesty. Because if anybody holds to good Bible doctrine, it's Jesus. And yet Jesus doesn't start where this woman was wrong. He actually starts in a humble posture of receiving something from this woman. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. (laughs) Let me ask you, how do you reach out to people that are different from you? How how do you break free from that familiar, safe, holy huddle of friends to actually risk rejection, whatever that might be? Not interested? Ooh, that's devastating. See, we, we don't really know persecution. We might knock on a door and not interested, and they close it. Bring it on. Um, how how can we learn to become tools for the gospel? What is it that keeps us regularly from not engaging with non-Christian people about spiritual truth that literally could change the trajectory of their life? Well, look at this woman and Jesus. Now, she's Samaritan. What does that tell you? But tells you that this animosity goes back like seven centuries before Jesus was even born. This goes all the way back to 722 BC, roughly. The Jews in the northern kingdom, as you probably remember from your history, were taken captive by the Assyrians. Oh, they were a mongrel mob of people. And they amalgamated with the Assyrians and they intermarried with the Assyrians and a whole new mixed breed was reared in that context. And this intermarriage meant that their purity as Jewish people was destroyed and southern Jews would have absolutely no toleration or anything to do with these half breed considered as dogs, even dead Samaritans. So Jesus is having a conversation with not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Now, there's nine things that I want us to learn. That'll give you an idea of how long or short I'm going to go. I'll fool you, okay? Stay with me. Nine things that we can learn from Jesus that will help sharpen the edge of our being an effective tool for the gospel. Here's the first one. It's found in verse four, and it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Another translation puts it, but he needed to go through Samaria. I like that one a little bit better, I must admit. And here's the first point. Intentionally seek to meet people who are different from you. This is not a shortcut. This is out of the way. Jesus needed to get there. You see, the greatest barriers in sharing the gospel are often cultural. And by cultural, I don't mean just American, French, Egyptian, Italian, Dutch, dinky-dye, Aussie. I'm talking about subcultures, goth. Emo, gamers, hipster, hip-hop, picket. You see, we don't feel comfortable, if we're honest, bridging back to the world that we've come out of, the world of lostness and of messiness and of, yuck, I don't do that anymore. We used to sing that song things I used to do, don't do them anymore. The places I used to go, don't go there anymore. The people I used to hang with, don't hang with anymore. There's been a great day since I've been born again. And there's truth in that. And there is something that screams like, really? How are you ever going to engage with a lost world if you don't have anything to do with them? as if close proximity is going to defile you. That's the old system. You've got the Spirit of God bearing witness here in the heart. and mm, We've got to remember that cultural differences are secondary to spiritual needs. Spiritual needs must always come first. Even if we have to bypass some of the acceptable cultural standards to meet those needs. And boy, Jesus is doing this. This is like driving a truck in a China store, Uh, you know? We need to stop letting the world's culture tell us about what we are to do or who we are to be or with whom we should be. Many prefer to stay culturally comfortable rather than spiritually salty. And for salt to be salty, it's got to get out of the shaker. Just on the table. So what's the deal? Doesn't flavor anything there. It looks nice. That's the first thing. Intentionally seek to meet people who are different from you. Secondly, be strategic in where you meet people. Look at verse 6. It says, And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. Now, Jacob... Is mentioned in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 12. You know what that tells me? It's not incidental. This was clearly a place of common ground. Why? Because everybody gets thirsty, right? You see, the Samaritans love the Pentateuch, so they love Jacob. Jesus loved the Pentateuch, and he loved Jacob. Where are some of the strategic places that you can meet people? Isn't it interesting that the Great Commission is a go you, not a come ye? Have you ever noticed that generally speaking, most non-Christian people don't flock to the church? And primarily our gathering in the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Yes, we want to share the hope of the gospel. We want people to come to faith if they happen to venture themselves in. But for the most part, they're out there, and that's why the Bible says, go you. In other words, you got to go where the fish are. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's why he had to go fishing in Samaria, of all places. At least there was water, okay? Thirdly, in building common ground, look for areas that you agree on. Look at verse 7. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, in, in this area, how do people view us sometimes? Um, in modern culture, we're becoming increasingly um, dinosauric and how we're perceived by the world, outdated, out of touch. Um, But the bottom line is sometimes we're we're known to be quite negative, Um, overly, uh, some view as restrictive, rigid, (laughs) rather than relaxed. It's kind of like I used to hear people, uh, British, they would talk about how they they would feel uh, they had to apologize if they leaned. You know, I, I remember seeing a British war film once and, and the guy was shot and he was apologizing for for kind of leaning and about ready to drop to the ground. I mean, crying out loud, you're shot, who cares? <laughs> but sometimes this this rigidity, um, again, hearkening back to where I grew up and even where I began a ministry in Geelong that lasted 35 years, and let me tell you to go that long in the same place that started where I started, um, that's only done by the enabling grace of God. Okay. Because that place was known more for what it was against than what it was for. And um, I, I don't see the beauty of Christ kind of hearkening as much for, from that. Have you considered the many areas of common ground that you hold with people that, Spiritually, you have nothing, nothing in common. You're in light, they're in darkness. You know they don't. You love Jesus, who's Jesus? <laughs> and yet you experience things. You both feel pain. You both grieve when someone dies. You both have hobbies and interests in sports. You know how to draw people out with questions about themselves. You, they help people with their skills. I've helped people. I've had neighbors help me. They know nothing of Jesus. We have some commonality. They they can be very welcoming, welcoming in, in their home, sharing a meal with you. You see, everybody cares about something and that something can be our starting point because there's no single approach to reaching people with the gospel. There's no one key that will unlock every person's heart. There's no formula. There's no one size fits all. That's why Paul said, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I may save some. That's a lot of all for a few, isn't it? But somehow, both Jesus and Paul and others who followed in his footsteps have come to believe that. Fourthly, be the one to make the first move. Take the initiative. Look what Jesus says in the latter part of verse 7. Jesus says to her, love it, four words changed her life completely. Give me a drink. Jesus starts his conversation with her in a humble posture of receiving from her. Do you see this? He asked her for water. And she pours out her soul. Now, I'm I, I feel sad to tell you this, but I didn't learn this. What I'm now going to say until about 10, 10 years ago. But I found about 10 years ago that starting with a posture of humility, putting yourself in a place of need and having a willingness of heart, not primarily to give answers, but to receive insight. God has used that in creating a welcoming place for non-Christian people to open their hearts in conversation with me. You see, I've already got a little something against me when I start a conversation with somebody who doesn't know me. Because everybody wants to know, well, so what do you do? And sometimes I play a game. And I say, well, I think you look pretty smart. How about I give you a few hints and you see if you can guess? And if they're willing to play the game, I play the game. I say, well, I work for a master builder who specializes in living organic material. And it's off. And sometimes within five to ten minutes, the average person gets it. But uh, I've had people go as far as like a group of eight guys once that went 42 minutes before it dimed, and they they went, no way! (laughs) I said, yeah, I am. But see, that diffuses... Or allays sometimes this title, this role that somehow shapes, in weird ways and sometimes in negative ways, what people perceive when they find out that you're a minister, or a pastor, or a you're a rev. And I said, "No, nah, I don't. I got my car's a four cylinder. How can I do that? You know." And so it just it, it has to change. This passage here Jesus opens up and if you follow it and you go back and read it later today you'll discover that Jesus continued to make little short they were like little little breadcrumbs no they were more like hors d'oeuvres like little munchies little finger foods tasty provocative statements that invited more conversation and everyone that he left for her she would just mm, and it was on okay He was drawing out little by little the longing of her soul. And he's a master at that. And we've got to learn that because it's our place to take the initiative. And you know what? We can practice that with one another right here because this is a safe place. We're all in. We're all on the inside. But Jesus is basically asking for the privilege. May I put my Jewish lips on your Samaritan cup? And that's radical. Radical. Now let's pause, okay? I hope you can do this. Because I, 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 th- I can think laterally, and my brain's over here, okay? now So come with me. We're going to go back way back to the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Abraham's in that story. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Now the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, where He was sitting at the tent door in the heat of day. Now at first, Abraham doesn't have a clue that he's entertaining the Lord of heaven. He's on the other side of hospitality. But notice where Abraham is seated or positioned. He's neither inside nor outside. He's both in and out. Abraham is simultaneously inhabiting Two worlds. And that's a good posture for the father of our faith. Because he's the one that God promised through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's why we're here today. So he's at home, but he's facing the world. And Abraham won the hearts of the strangers by offering hospitality to them. Now back to our story in John 4. Jesus is winning the heart of this woman by accepting hospitality from her. You see, Abraham's hospitality is the one that we're best versed with. We're the, the one that we're more conversant and familiar with. It's a let me kind, let me help you, let me serve you, let me give you. We've got that down. Some of you have it to an art form. And we praise God for that. But Jesus' hospitality here in John 4 is a will you kind. Will you help me? Will you give me a drink of water? And this kind of hospitality, I believe is kind of the deeper of the two. Why? Because the first kind of hospitality puts us in charge. We're the ones who jump in and take action. We're the merciful ones. We're the ones that have a little bit of extra bread, a little bit of a party pie, a little bit of a coffee, and we offer it and share it. But the second kind of hospitality puts us in need. We're not in control anymore. We just sit there and receive. And yet Jesus requests for water is when the kingdom of God literally broke open and flooded her soul. Number five, keep your culture from interfering with your commitment. Look at verse nine. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, question, how did she know that? though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. You see, Jesus is clearly cutting across cultural propriety. His request went against everything this woman had been raised to believe, and it was totally outside the square. Very unconventional. wasn't orthodox. If he had been a member of the church that I grew up in, he would have been disciplined and probably cast out for a while. You don't do that. You see, people often have preconceived ideas about what a Christian really looks like. And we want to look like Jesus. Not a caricature of what we think Jesus looks like, but the very image of Christ that is being formed in us by His Holy Spirit, and the word of God. We don't have to stop being who or what we are any more than Jesus did, because she read, boy, you're a Jew. But neither should that stop us in our commitment to reaching out to someone like a Samaritan. Number six, build on common ground in order to meet spiritual need. Look at verse 10. Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. You see, this woman was unaware of at least three things. Who he was, what he had to offer, and how she could get it. Until she met Jesus... She didn't even know that she had a need. And that's why the way that Jesus is approaching her is so vital, because you know what? You've got to know the bad news before the good news makes any sense. But you don't do that by just standing on a street corner and saying, hey, you're going to go to hell. That's true if you don't know Jesus. You're going to go to hell. But I think there's a better way. Rather than creating a wall or an obstacle that must become or must be overcome by the mind of a person who would hear that today in modern society, let's build a bridge and let's invite ourselves to go on the other side and walk with people across. Let's view it as a journey, not simply an event in which all of a sudden you're catapulted into a whole new realm and didn't even know how it happened. Jesus wanted her to know that he was aware of her thirst. He knew how she was living. Jesus knew that one of the quickest ways to invade the human heart is through a wound. Where did this woman hurt? Where where was the pain of her life? If If you've had five husbands and you're living with another dude at present... Something's wrong. Something's not working. And that hurts, no matter how you might look on the outside. In verse 16, look what Jesus says Go call your husband. Tender. Jesus is tender. In a short while, the one who's talking to her is going to die. The one who's talking to her is a friend of sinners. Look at verse 17. She said, "Uh, I don't have a husband. And and what did Jesus say? (laughs) You have well said, I have no husband. That to me is tact. Jesus is not just tender, he's tactful. He didn't call her a liar. He didn't beat her over the head. He's he's leading her. He he wants her to see her I know the story. I've read your heart like an open book, but it's not the last chapter. I want to write my story into yours and change the narrative completely. And then look at verse 18. He says, "For the For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus is truthful. He didn't dilute the truth, but he prefaced it with tenderness and tactfulness so that when the truth came home, it did its work. Number seven, when your culture conflicts with God's word, Your culture is wrong and it needs to be corrected. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. You see, if what we've grown up with and what we've been taught as we've grown up, if it is not right and acceptable in relationship to the Word of God, uh, we need to address that. Um, Early in my days in India, often in the teaching with pastors, uh, I would say, follow Christ, no buts. No buts. The word but in Telugu is "gani." It's interesting, it always follows, it, it starts at the a sentence, you know, but it changes everything because your heart always lies on the right side of the butt. Yours does, mine does. Anytime somebody asks you a question and you go, yeah, yeah, I liked it, but listen up because whatever they say next is what they really think. See? Follow Christ, no buts if when you're whenever our lifestyle, our cultural ways of doing things or the ways that we've always done it. Though they may be good, if they're not better or the best, if they are not in harmony with the word of God, well, guess who has to change? And see, Jesus has gotten this far because he was willing to drink from her cup. He's moved very close and very personal with her. They've talked about worship. But all of this is irrelevant. Do you know why? This this worship sidetrack, I don't think it was a sidetrack. She was just trying to talk. It's like, what do you do? This guy knows me. And God gives a criteria. It's not place and culture. It's spirit. It's truth. Often, our style of worship says more about our culture and our background than it does about our theology. Now, our theology should, can, will be reflected in our worship. But often, honestly, some of the, the, the worship ways that I've grown up with and I've seen in a plethora of churches as I've been around in many places in the world, often it's, it's culturally shaped and influenced by the truth of God's word. But it's very different, you know. um, In India, in all of the rural tribal areas where I've been, tabla is the only instrument. They don't have keyboard. If they can afford it, they might get it. They don't have guitar. Tabla is a set of drums on the floor. It's percussion-driven. But let me tell you, the worship is in spirit and in truth, but it's different. It, um, it, it, it really rocked my world. People are motivated to listen to the degree that whatever we're talking about is perceived to be relevant to that which we understand as real needs in our life. Look at verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. <laughs> um, we're getting another insight into the expression of cultural baggage. These disciples had a fair bit of baggage. They've, they've gone to get some takeaway. They brought the takeaway back. There wasn't Uber's Eat, Uber Eats in those days. Uh, and they're shocked out of their sandals. What's Jesus doing? You know, this is, this is crazy. Part of the cost in reaching out to those around you will be raising the eyebrows of a few people who are even your fellow disciples. I don't know how to raise mine. I'll just go like that. Okay. Rather than being concerned about what others might think, maybe we ought to be more concerned about what does God desire of us? Number eight, the will of God takes priority over the want of food. Look what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know what it is that nourishes my soul? You know what it is that is the primary source of my strength and satisfaction? It's it's seeking my life's nourishment in both being and doing the will of my father, to be caught up with what he wants me to do. That takes priority over everything. Number nine, open your eyes to the people round about you. Look at verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, Raise your eyes and observe the fields. They are white for harvest. Do you know what I think Jesus is referring to? Look at verse 29. The woman had gone back to her village and she said, Come see a man who told me all the things that I've ever done. Is this not the Christ? Come on. And they went out of the city and they were coming to him. So all of these blokes, all of the people that were within earshot of this woman saying, come and see, they're coming toward Jesus. And Jesus is talking to these guys who've got the food and saying, let's eat. And Jesus said... There's more important things right now. Raise your eyes and look. And I think they probably did. And they saw a whole bunch of people coming to Jesus. You see what Jesus has done? He led this woman from a common ground to an uncommon certainty in himself. And the difficulty then is the same for today. It's not in finding white fields, but in willing followers. And he that has ear to hear, let him hear. And I've looked around this morning and each of you have got at least two of them. Let's pray. God, be merciful to us for forgetting so quickly that we were in the same situation as this woman with a horrid, sordid past. For sin is the great leveler of all humanity. Sin is the reason that the cross rises and looms so high and so exalted above all that has happened in this earth. And the most outrageous, scandalous act that could ever have been committed upon the very Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us happened so that we might never be Forsaken, that we could be forgiven, that we could enter into a relationship. And I thank you, Father, for this woman who had the courage to just go back and put it out there. Come see a oh man who told me everything that I ever was. Is this not the Messiah? Yeshua Amashia? Oh, Father. Thank you that we have been entrusted with the same privilege, the same message, the same glorious hope. Continue to shape us to be sharp and viable instruments in your hands, tools for the gospel, co-labors together with you in the greatest work this side of heaven. And Father, if if we can discern the times, we're running out of time. The night is far spent. And there's coming a dawning of a new day that'll be here sooner than we think. So, Father, help us to be ever so sincere and zealous in seeking to make you known in hearts where you're not. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.